2 Kings and chapter 5. And I'm going to read the first nine verses there, and then I want to pray over the word as we receive it. So 2 Kings chapter 5, and starting in verse 1, it says, Naaman, commander of the army for the king of Aram, was a man important to his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was a valiant warrior, but he had a skin disease. Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he could cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. Therefore, the king of Aram said, go, I will send a letter with you to the king of Israel. So he went and took with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold and 10 sets of clothing. He brought the letter to the king of Israel and it read, when this letter comes to you, note that I have sent you my servant Naaman for you to cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and asked, Am I God killing and giving life that this man expects me to cure a man of his skin disease? Recognize that he is only picking a fight with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Have have him come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us it truth that we can hold in our hands and you fulfill your promise to meet us every time we engage you in your holy scripture. I thank you that it's alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I thank you that you use it to build us up, encourage us, edify us, and teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So here in 2 Kings, you have the story of a man called Naaman. And it says he was a conqueror. He was a valiant warrior. And you, you get this description of strength and wealth, ability and authority. But he had a skin disease. He had leprosy, which which, you know, is eventually fatal. It's a wasting type of disease and it's painful. And he is from Aram, Aram, Syria. And it references there that they would go out on raids. And some of those raids were in the nation of Israel. And in one of those raids, they brought back a slave girl who ended up serving Naaman's wife in his own house. And when she saw her master afflicted by this disease, she said to his wife, if only my master could go to the prophet of God who's in Samaria, he would be Cured, And so Naaman, hearing that, goes to the king and says, I think I may have an idea. I think I need to go and at least find this out. And so the king sends him with letters of recommendation to go to the king of Israel to take it there. He said, I've sent you my servant Naaman, my, my treasured servant Naaman, so that you can cure him of this fatal disease. And the king of Israel tears his clothes which was a big deal for them. It was to show your angst like, oh, no, what am I going to 
do. He says, what am I? Am I God that I can cure and heal this man that you've sent to me? Surely you're just trying to pick a fight with me. Surely you've done this just so I will fail so that you can come and attack me for it. What am I going to do? And the prophet of God, Elisha, heard this is how big of a deal it was for them to tear their clothes, heard that the king had torn his clothes. He said, why are you doing that? Send him to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman, the conqueror, rolls up to the prophet's house with horses and chariots. Now, we have been talking about the soul, right? This is, I think, week 11 that we've been talking about the soul. Number one, that it exists, that it is there, that we have this internal life about us. And then number two, that it's important. And we're trying to learn more about it because we have been appointed to at least be the one that guards our heart, guards our soul, because out of it flows the issues of life. That's the book of Proverbs. And one of the things that we've learned about our soul is that it is needy. It's needy. It needs a lot of things. And that's one of the reasons God gave us to be its keeper. And we can best take care of something when we better understand it, right? So we've been trying to understand more about it. And one of the things that we have learned is our soul needs comfort. It's regularly looking for comfort. And in looking for that comfort, we can turn aside from God Almighty who is our only true and good source of comfort for our soul to lesser things. And that what the Bible would use to describe that is called idolatry or worshiping, looking to idols to take care of what only God can do. That we will will take good things and try to make them great things. Or we'll take good things and try to make them ultimate things. And one of the lines that we've gone over to try to help find those issues in our life is my life only has meaning and I only have worth if. My life only has meaning and I only have worth if. And some of the things we've talked to, we talked about the story of Abraham, that his was if I get what I want most in the whole world. He wanted a son more than anything else. He wanted children and a family uh, to, to give an inheritance to his was my life only has meaning. I only have worth if I get what I want most. And we talked about Jacob and his was romantic love. And we talked about how that can affect us when we look to it as the ultimate thing in life. And then last week with Zacchaeus talked about money. My life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have at least this amount of money. And this week with Naaman, we're going to be talking about Success and accomplishment. The idolatry of success and accomplishment. And you'll see it's closely tied to the one from last week, closely tied to money, but it is slightly different. And just like our previous weeks, I want to open with a few quotes just so that we can see evidence of this in our own culture. Okay, people seeking and serving the idol of success and accomplishment. So our first quote is from a pop music artist named Madonna. Now, some of y'all may not have heard of Madonna. If you're younger, you may not have. She was Lady Gaga from the 80s. That's who she was. And in an interview in 1991, okay, magazine interview, 1991, she said, I have an iron will and all of my will has always been 
to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I pushed past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. So that doesn't just in general sound like a really happy person, does it? But what she's saying, she's saying my my goal, my, my will, everything I'm putting my energy to is to not feel like I'm not somebody. And every time I reach a plateau, I reach a goal, I feel good for a little bit. I feel like, yes, I'm doing it. I'm somebody. I'm going to be okay. I'm validated. And she said, then the stage gets a little bit bigger and I start to feel mediocre again. I start to feel like I'm not enough and I have to push again and over and over and over and over it goes. And again, this is 1991. How much more now is our, is our culture focused on success and accomplishment even than it was then? And that's what it looks like to serve those two things. I had another quote from, let me get her name right, Mary Bell, which you won't know her, but she's a counselor uh, who was working with high level business executives. So think people that make more than all of us in the room combined. And she said, these days, the best people don't abuse alcohol. They abuse their lives. You're successful, so good things happen. You complete a project and you feel dynamite. That feeling doesn't last forever and you slide back to normal. You think, I've got to start a new project, which is still normal. But you love the feeling of euphoria, so you've got to have it again. The problem is you can't stay on that high. Say you're working on a deal and it doesn't get approved. Your self-esteem is on the line because you have been gathering your self-worth externally. Eventually in this cycle, you drop to the pain level more and more often. The highs don't seem quite so high. You may win a deal that's even bigger than the one that got away, but somehow that deal doesn't take you to euphoria. Next time you don't even get back to normal because you're so desperate about clinching the next deal. An achievement addict is no different from any other kind of addict. So you see what she's saying there. You She's seeing in high ranking people in the business world. And again, that interview is from probably a couple of decades ago. High ranking people that they, they would get a deal done. I'm amazing. I'm awesome. I've got the tiger by the tail. I'm at the top of everything that there is. And you get this feeling of accomplishment and euphoria, but she said it wouldn't last. And you would slide back to normal and you would miss it. And like, I need to get that again. I need to reach up there and get it again. And so you would do it again. But just like a drug addict, they, they're chasing that first high. They want to feel that same good that they felt the first time. They just can't ever get back. And then next thing you know, you are pushing just not to feel pain. Just not to feel bad. 
Success and achievement can lead to, to, to two extreme attitudes. One of I'm awesome, I'm amazing, I'm crushing it. And the other one, I'm awful, I'm terrible, and I can't do anything. One or the other extreme. And I've talked before about how, and I could take you to the spot on the road where I was driving and I was having a bad morning and it was making me feel like I was bad, making me feel like I wasn't enough, making me feel like you're not going to be able to do this. And the spirit said to me, Stephen, good days don't make you good and bad days don't make you bad. See, you're taking the good day and you're thinking from that, I'm good. I'm a crusher. I'm getting stuff knocked out. And you're taking the bad days and going, I'm awful. What, what's going to happen? I, I, this is never going to get done. How is this going to work out? Woe is me. What's going to happen to me? Serving that feeling and that sense of success and accomplishment can leave you either with a false sense of security. That's the I'm awesome or a false sense of hopelessness of what's going to happen to me. I'm not going to be able to get any of this done. Right. One or the other seeking and serving it can distort how I see myself. And again, it's these extremes. It's either I'm unbeatable. I can know everything or I'm a loser and I'm not going to be able to ever accomplish anything. It's one or the other. And they're both a big problem for us. And we see that in those first two quotes. We see the the impact of seeking after success and achievement as our God. And the problem with it is to serve it, we have to maintain it. We have to be the one maintaining. I want to read one more. This is from uh, a former tennis star, uh, Chris Everett. Um, again, big time in, I think, the 70s and the 80s, maybe one of the best win records ever, especially a, a, as a female. And she was getting close to retirement. And she was being honest with an interviewer that she was speaking with. And she said, I had no idea of who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. There's that connection again. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. I needed the wins and the applause in order to have an identity because she didn't know who she would be without it. That was her identity. I'm a tennis champion. That's what I've worked for. I'm the winner. I'm the one that wins at tennis. That's what I do. And she, again, retirement, she's getting older. Her body's not able to do that like that anymore. It's time to shut it down. Who in the world am I now? That is, has been, was my identity. And without it, I am going to be lost. And she said it was like a drug. I needed it. I needed it in order to have an identity. Who am I without it? Again, my life only has meaning and I only have worth if. And for hers, it it, it was if I'm a tennis champion. If I'm still respected in my field. If I'm at the top of the mountain. And even then, when she was at the top, she was having to fight to stay at the top. And it wasn't doing for her what she wanted it to do. The idolatry of success and accomplishment has two premises. The first one is that I can control your opinion and approval of me through my performance. 
And you notice that word control. Most of our, when we're talking about idolatry, it goes back to how can I be in control? And when I'm serving success and achievement or accomplishment, it's I believe that I can control what you think about me and your acceptance of me through my performance. That I can control that, which means what I'm controlling you. Well, if I do this, then you have to accept me. If I do this, then you have to appreciate me. If I do this, then I am somebody. That's the first premises. And the second one is just that that's the only thing in life that matters. Whether or not I'm accepted or approved of based on my performance. And this is the world that we find Naaman in. This is the mindset that we find him with. He was a valiant warrior. He was a conqueror. He was an achiever. He was a man of wealth and power and ability and respect. He had an audience with the king. And yet, he had a disease. He had leprosy. He is slowly falling apart. He is slowly dying and approaching death. He had success and achievement, but he was a leper. He had run in the highest circles of influence, but success couldn't overcome the alienation that was going to come about because of the leprosy. What he thought would hold him, his success, his accomplishments, the battles that he had won was failing him. See, we can see success and accomplishment as security. We can see it as access. We can see it as definite and controllable validation. But when we look closer and we listen to these stories, what we learn is it cannot deliver. All idols will break your heart. They have to. They don't have any choice. They can't deliver on what you're asking them to do because you're taking, hey, Ren, something good. Accomplishments, achievements, wins, those are good. But you're taking that and asking it to be something that it can't be. And so it's going to drop you from there. Idols will always break your heart. And Naaman is no doubt dealing with that. And then on the recommendation of a slave girl that lives in his house, he goes to the king and said, hey, this has been recommended. I'm willing to try anything. And the king says, absolutely, I'll send you with letters and you go to Israel's king. You know, his Naaman didn't go straight to the prophet's house. He went to the king. He wanted to speak to the manager first. It's funny, you have that in our culture. Now, you know, we refer to, you know, well, she's a Karen, right? She wants to talk to the manager. And what you, what, what you started to see is that's not necessarily people who just have a bad attitude. It's people who have a sense of entitlement. Do you know who I am? If you knew who I was, you would give me better service than this. I want to talk to your manager. Or your, I, I need to speak to someone of more importance than you who's up on my level. It's that attitude, right? It's that attitude. It's a sense of entitlement. And you, you, you see that. You'll see that in Naaman because of who I am. Here's what my expectations are. So he comes with those letters and his leprosy to the king and the king tears his clothes. Why? Because Naaman was coming expecting to buy a healing either with his reputation or the silver and gold and the clothes that he was bringing with him. And the king of Israel knew this. Our God doesn't work like that. 
You don't tell him what to do. He is not transactional. And so what, what did the king know? He, he's tearing his clothes like, this is probably going to get me killed. How in the world did I end up in this situation where you send this guy, the commander of your armies, and tell me to heal him? What's going to happen when he doesn't get healed? Who's he going to be mad at? Probably me. Ah! Right? He's just like, this is probably the end of me, and I can't do anything about it. This is the situation that the king of Israel sees. And look, and again, look what he hollered out when this happened. He tears his clothes and he says, am I God killing and giving life that this man expects me to cure a man of his skin disease? You're asking me to do something that only God can do, right? And so Elisha, the prophet, heard that the king had torn his clothes because, again, big deal. And says, send him to me. He'll find out there's a God in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Horses and chariots. It'd be like the, thinking like pulling up in a tank, you know, or flying in in an Apache helicopter and landing in the to roll up with horses and chariots and an entourage. It would have been that level of celebrity and in a show of power. You have a man in Naaman, a man of success and accomplishment, who, who's thinking to himself, it'll be different for me because of who I am. Life isn't supposed to be difficult for me. I'm Naaman. I'm an accomplisher. I'm a winner. I'm a fighter. It's going to be different for me. I'm at the top. Who do I need to pay? Who is it that I need to impress? Who do I need to show the king's letter to so that I get what it is that I'm after? That's how he, in his mind, that's how the world is working. So when he gets to the prophet's house, what he's expecting is for them to roll out the red carpet. That's what he is expecting. Now, what does he get? Verse 10. Then Elisha sent him a messenger who said, go wash seven times in the Jordan and your skin will be restored and you will be clean. Elisha doesn't even come to the door. Again, Apache helicopter landed in the front yard. Horses and chariots have pulled up. Naaman, the conqueror from Syria, is like, Naaman is here. Elisha doesn't even come to the door. He sends his servant down with the instructions of tell him to go wash seven times in the Jordan River, our river, right? The slave girl's river. Tell him to go wash seven times in the river and he will be healed. How did Naaman respond? Not well. Verse 11. But Naaman got angry and left saying, I was telling myself he will surely come out, stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the skin disease. Aren't uh, Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? So he turned and left in a rage. And look at, look, look at why he's angry. He said, I was telling myself when I get there, it'll be like this. When I get there, they'll treat me like this. When I get there, this is what'll happen. He's talking about go wash in the slave girls river. Don't we have, we got awesome rivers back where I'm. Have you seen my rivers where I live? And it said he was filled with 
rage. He left in a rage. And it's that attitude of, do you know who I am? You have offended me. See, the the higher view we have of ourselves, the easier it is for us to be offended. You don't treat me like that. Do you know where I'm from? Do you know what I've done? Do you know who? Do you know who I am? And that's how Naaman was reacting. And I love the way it says it in the CSB. That's what I'm reading out of, by the way, the Christian Standard Bible. He said, I was telling myself. I was telling myself that this is how it would be. I was telling myself he will surely come out, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the disease. I thought, I expected. Now remember, a longing soul is listening. A longing soul is listening and it's listening most to you and what was Naaman telling himself? It's going to be different for you, buddy. They're going to treat you like big time stuff. You're a celebrity rolling up in here. They're going to fix this for you real quick. You don't have to worry because of who you are, because of what you've done, because you're Naaman, this is going to get fixed for you. It's going to be different for us, Naaman. They will. This is what's going to happen. He told himself how it was going to go and look how he lost it when it was different. He told himself how it was going to go and he lost his head when it was different. And we do the same thing, right? We do the same thing. We expect they're going to treat me like this. I'm going to get this type of reception. Here's how they're going to treat me after I finish this project. They're probably going to give me a rate. They're probably going to do this on my evaluation. This is what's going to happen and this is what's going to happen. And then when it doesn't, whoa, right? Why? Because we've put our hope and expectation in that. That I have earned this, I have the expectation now, this is how you're going to treat me. And, and we see that in ourselves, the same thing that was happening with Naaman. We're not beating up on him, we've acted this same way. We can find that in ourselves. He thought he could buy this or win this, that he could be impressive because it had worked before. It had worked before. And when it didn't, he flew into a rage. Why? Because this was his only hope. This was his last hope. He's like, I heard about this. This is how it was supposed to go. And now I get here and they treat me like this. And this isn't going like I thought it was. And now I've still got leprosy. What what am I going to do? When our last hope falls, we fall with it, right? And he fell hard. But look at verse 13. He's got servants too. And bless their hearts, they spoke up. In verse 13, he said, but his servants approached and said to him, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he only tells you wash and be clean? See, they don't understand. They're having trouble wrapping their mind around this. In verse 13, they said, well, if he had told you to do some great thing, If he had told you to go conquer some other army, if he had told you to go, you know, get this treasure and bring it back, if he had told you to go win this battle line, like you would have done it, right? If he had told you to go on a quest, you would have gone, wouldn't you? Because you're naming, you would have done that. Why won't you just go and wash? Because he would have done that. What do I need to do? Who do I need to defeat? Who do I need to impress? Who do I need to buy this from? I'll work harder. I'll be stronger. How much greatness is required? And they're looking at it going, boss, he just told you to go wash in the river. 
Like that's like the, we could do that. That's such an easy thing. Why, why don't you just go and do it? Because in their mind, they're like, boss, what do you have to lose? Why wouldn't you just go wash in the Jordan River like he said? I mean, just just go and do it. They, they didn't know why he wouldn't do that. They're like, it seems easier. And see, a servant would think that way. A servant would think, what do you have to lose? Just go get in the water seven times. Get healed. That's what he said. I mean, oh, okay. What do you have to lose? But for Naaman, what he had to lose was only everything. In his conqueror mind, for me to take that that I've, I, that I've taken on as disrespect and to go wash in the slave girl's river, I'll lose everything. That's me laying down everything. What do I have to lose? I have everything to lose. He's seeing that he can't control and command with his success and with his wealth and with his influence because life and death are hanging in the balance and and those things won't touch it. And so he's commanded to go wash in the river and that commandment was hard for him because it was easy. That's why the servant said, why don't you just go do it? It's easy. And it was hard for him because it was easy. He's like, no, it's supposed to be different for me because of who I am. Anybody can go do that. He's being treated just like any other person. Anybody can go do that. It was hard as a commandment for him because it was easy. A child could have done it. Anybody could do it. It was a commandment aimed at humility and weakness and not aimed at his strength, not aimed at his achievement. Not based in his accomplishments, but one that required weakness and humility. And Naaman ended up repenting there at the River Jordan. Look at verse 14. They they said, why? You know, if he had told you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, according to the command of the man of God. Then his skin was restored and became like the skin of a, of a small boy or a young child. And he was clean. Amen. Then Naaman and his whole company went back to the man of God, stood before him and declared, I know there's no God in the whole world except in Israel. Therefore, please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha said, because he came out to talk to him now, as the Lord lives in whose presence I stand. I will not accept it. Naaman urged him to accept it, but he refused. And so see what this is, is a story of achievement and strength failing and grace prevailing. Grace winning out. See, because consider the beginning of the story again, Naaman, conqueror, valiant, hero, warrior, but has leprosy. He was... He was the conqueror and look who helped him. Who was it? The slave girl. One of the conquered. One of the ones who didn't live in her land anymore because Naaman came and took her from her land because he's a conqueror. She sees his affliction and how does she respond? We might respond with a little bit of glee, right? All right, buddy, serves you right. I hope your ear falls off tomorrow. Look, another piece of him's gone. <laughs> Take me for my family, right? But she didn't. She didn't respond that way. She responded with grace and said, here's a way that my master can be healed. 
Here's how my master can be healed. There is help. We see another servant, Elisha. Who, what does he send down? He doesn't come down and like wave his hands around like Naaman's expecting. He sends down one of his servants with the message. And then finally, we have Naaman's own servants speaking. Uh, you see the little trend there. Servants. Saying, hey, j- j- lay, lay this down. Why don't you just do the, humble yourself and do this? See, because God will use weak things to shame those of us who trust in our strength. He'll use weak things to shame those of us who trust in our strength. Success and achievement, idolatry, will condition you to think you can come before the living God the same way that Naaman came before the king of Israel and Elijah. I'm here. Are you ready for me to impress you? Are you ready for me to tell you all that I've done, all that I plan to do? You're going to be so glad that I'm on your team. You're going to be so glad that you got me, God, prepared to be impressed. Look what I've done. Look whose approval I have. Look where I have influence. Look at what I'm amassed, what, what I've put together. And what are we actually telling God when we come to him that way? Just like Naaman, I've done all of this. Now y'all are going to do what I want you to do. And when we come to God with that attitude, it's look at everything that I've done, everything that I've done for you. Now you're going to do what I want you to do for me. Because success and accomplishment is our means of controlling, remember? Even our means of trying to control Him. Now does that work? No, it doesn't work. But it doesn't stop us from trying, well, God, why would this happen to me? I did this for you and this for you and this for you. Why am I dealing with this? Why did this come up? Why did this person betray me? Why is this going on? Essentially saying what? You owe me more than this and better than this because of who I am and because of what I've done. And we can see it fleshed out even in our relationship with him. I want him to obey me. That's what Naaman thought. But look at the response. You've got to lay all of that down in the Jordan River. You've got to humble yourself and realize that you're not the strong one here. You're weak here. And it's in your weakness that you find grace. Naaman expected to be rewarded based on his strength when it was his weakness that opened the door. It was embracing in humility his weakness, his inability to do what he thought that he could do, which was be God for himself. And it was in that weakness. See, the answer didn't come from the king of Aram, king of Syria. He didn't have the answer. Who had the answer? The servant girl had the answer. So what we have to know as we finish up is we have to be able to separate who we are from what we do. We have to be able to separate who we are from what we do or what we have done. Because like Naaman, inevitably, we will be separated from it. Just like the tennis great, Chris Everett, we will be separated from it. And then who am I outside of that? When my life's meaning and my life's worth is based in something that can go away, what happens to me when it goes away? I crash And I burn and I fall to pieces or fly into a rage like Naaman. That's why our soul finds its 
validation, finds its acceptance, finds its celebration in him and him alone because he's not falling down. We have to be able to separate who we are from what we do. Just like we last week, a man is not made up of the abundance of his wealth. We have to separate what we have from who we actually are. Again, my life only has meaning. I only have worth if. If what? What's the answer for you? My life only has meaning. I only have worth if. Because he has extended grace. That's why my life has meaning and I have worth. Because he has given me grace. It wasn't based on my accomplishments. It was based on my ability to do what any kid could do, which is go get dunked in the Jordan River, essentially. Right? That's how Naaman was accepted, not in his strength, not in his accomplishments, but in his weakness. The command was hard for him because it was so easy. And that's the offense of grace, right? We think, well, yeah, God loves me, God forgives me, but he's still really impressed with what I'm doing. <laughs> right? He's still really impressed with what I'm doing. I mean, we're not, I'm not on the same level as them because they were doing this and I was doing this. And we forget that grace puts us all at the same level. And man, there's some comfort in that when we realize it and when we hold on to it, isn't there? Because then on my bad days, I'm not bad. When I don't take credit for the good days, I don't have to absorb all the pain and the hurt from the bad days because he keeps me level by his grace through all of it. And again, succeed, reach those accomplishments, push forward, do well, but never, ever, ever make that God. Never, ever, ever look to that to do what only he can do because it will puff you up, make you prideful, make you act like Naaman. And look what happened. He had to be humbled. Success is a moving target. We'll expect it to be God for us and then it will leave us devastated like it has all the others that have ever tried to serve it. It'll wear you out. It will wear you out. He sent salvation to the weak. Naaman, when he was weak, that's when he found salvation in our weakness. While we were still sinners, while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, Christ died for us. If we had to find it in our success, then we wouldn't be able to trust it because we're not always going to be successful. If we had to find it in our perfection, we would lose it because we're going to fail. We're going to be imperfect. He sent salvation to the weak and to the enslaved so that when we find success, we know not to trust in it. When we have success, we know not to trust in it. Years later, many, many years after this happened with Naaman and Elisha, and he humbled himself and went and washed in the Jordan River on the same banks of that river, there was a man uh, baptizing for repentance. Repent. Change the way that you think for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then one day, another walked up, right? And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
And He didn't come as a conqueror. He didn't come as a valiant warrior. He came as what? A servant. He came as a servant for us to say, it's in your, I accepted you in your weakness. I accepted you when you had nothing to offer. Don't think you have to start earning your way in the kingdom now. Don't think you have to start building up your own name in the kingdom now. I accepted you when you were nothing. I'll keep you even if you're nothing. You are mine. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for accomplishments. Thank you for the wins. Thank you for the good days. Thank you for the projects that get done and and the things that we are able to, to do. You give us the ability to make wealth. You give us the ability to be successful. God, but keep our hearts close to you so that when we encounter success, we never look to it as God. We never trust in it. We never build our validation off of it. We never tie our, our identity to it. Let us always be found resting in you. You accepted us in our weakness and you accept us still. That you're not looking for us to impress you or make a big name in front of you so that you can think well of us. You think well of us because of Christ and you look upon us with grace. And Father, help, uh, help our hearts to learn that we're so quick to want to earn it. We're so quick to turn to a system where it's points based and we know the rules. And because it makes sense, our heart gravitates to it. But in the end, it will hurt us. Thank you for the freedom that we find in your grace, that our identity is not tied up in the things that we do, but our identity is in you and there it is safe. There it's safe because that's the only thing that can hold us and sustain us when like Naaman, it's a life and death situation. There's only one answer, one hope in life and death, and it is Christ alone. And I thank you. Thank you that just like you sent an answer to him in the form of a servant, you sent the ultimate answer to us in the form of a servant, Christ Jesus, who came to be a servant of all. Though he was Lord, served all. And I thank you that you found us in our weakness and we found salvation by your grace in our weakness. And it's from there that we can find strength and proceed out and do the good works that you've appointed for us to do. Not putting our hope in them, not putting our trust in them, putting all that in you and then letting our good works testify of how good you are. Father, as we get ready to go, I thank you that you protect us and keep us safe. Lord, lead us in paths of righteousness this week for your name's sake. And Father, when the freedom from performance anxiety recedes, that the courage that comes from being found in you, knowing that you love us, knowing that you've received us, knowing that you will hold and sustain us, we can rest and work at the same time. And I thank you for that blessing that we find in Christ Jesus. We love you. We thank you. In his name, amen.